Hey, thank you, Jim. You guys can take a seat this morning. Hey, good morning. How we doing? Hey, so for the last several weeks, we've been in a series in the book of Hebrews. We're uh, calling this series, uh, Jesus is Better. And um, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Hey, so in 1986, Los Angeles, California held its first ever marathon, which was inspired by the success of the one across the country over in Boston. And because it was California, some of the participants in that first marathon were a little unusual. So one guy ran in full circus makeup and he called himself T-Bone the Clown. Uh, Another contestant ran as somebody called the Flower Man. There were 13 people who draped themselves in a specially designed costume and competed as a human centipede. I'm not kidding. The start of the race was all fun and games. I mean, T-Bone the Clown was shaking hands, waving to the kids, giving out candy. The human centipede was high-stepping and dancing around the crowd. And the Flower Man was handing out, well, you probably guessed it, flowers. You know, when you begin a marathon, you begin in what is sometimes called the pleasure stage. At this point, running's fun. It's enjoyable. Your body's loose, your head's clear. Listen, in this stage, the birds are singing, the sun is shining, the fish are jumping, the corn's high, daddy's rich, and mama's good looking. Right? I mean, you get the idea, the pleasure stage. Uh, But after this, running becomes much, much harder. Some might even call it drudgery, and after drudgery comes pain. And if you run long enough, the temptation to quit becomes almost overwhelming. Runners refer to this stage as hitting the wall. Hitting the wall. What are you gonna, what's going to happen when you hit the wall? Running through this stage is the ultimate test of any runner. Races are won or lost, finished or abandoned at the wall. Now, when the runners in the L.A. Marathon uh, got to this stage, things looked way less festive. In fact, T-Bone the Clown wasn't laughing with the crowd anymore. In fact, someone said they spotted him by the side of the road throwing up his breakfast. The human centipede was actually found draped over a fence with 13 college students littered around the field. The flower man literally wilted 100 yards out of the gate. And see, the start of a race is enjoyable, it's easy, but finishing is hard work. It'll take focus and training to finish. And in the Bible, the ability to finish, to stay the course, is called perseverance, And you may have noticed that in the passage Jim read a little earlier, the Christian life is likened to a marathon, a race that the author is urging us to run all the way to the end. All the way to the end. And so it begins this way. He says, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Now, Who is this cloud of witnesses? What's he talking about? Well, if you'll remember, last week, Pastor Mike talked us through Hebrews chapter 11, the faith. This is sometimes called the Faith Hall of Fame. I thought Mike did a masterful job uh, teaching through that passage. So if you weren't here, I would highly encourage you to go back and give that a a, a listen. But
But in that passage, the author is talking about all of the great things that the saints of the Old Testament were able to do and accomplish and endure because of their faith. Because they had great faith, they did and accomplished great things. So he's reminding us that they did all of those things without seeing God fulfill his promise of the Messiah or the promise that we have seen fulfilled through our Jesus. So we're on the back side of that. They had faith without seeing the fulfillment of the promise. We have faith because we've seen God fulfill that promise. So he's talking about these people who've run their race ahead of us. He's saying since we're surrounded, since, since people of faith like this have preceded us you know what should we do well here's not here's what he what, here's what he would say not to do he would say well he, he would he would he would say we shouldn't do this we should we shouldn't say let us hide and whine and complain and hoard our resources just in case hey let's put our bibles in a drawer let's build bomb shelters let's purchase ammunition let's blame the cops let's blame the president let's blame the politicians let's blame our mamas let's demand our rights let's build a wall tax the rich play it safe find somebody to sue take back our country and pray that jesus returns so we don't have to suffer he didn't say any of those things Here's what he said instead. By the way, did I miss anybody? Did I? Yeah, I probably didn't because I'm an equal opportunity preacher. So uh, he says that, so yeah, I want to remind you of what this great cloud of witnesses had to endure in Hebrews 11. Mike, Mike actually uh, taught through this passage, but just, um, you know, by way of reminder, here's what it says. Again, he's talking about what these great saints had to en- were able to endure because of their faith. He says, others were tortured and refused to be released. These are real people. So that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. And I love this phrase, the world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. So they were, not only were they able to do and accomplish great things because of their faith, they were able to endure difficult things. Listen, the world was not worthy of them in the sense that the world wasn't always kind to them. In the same way that the world is not always kind to you and to I. And so in light of what we just read, can you imagine how we might sometimes sound to this great cloud of witnesses in the Faith Hall of Fame? Wait, you're worried about what? What, Like, you're scared of who? Like, you're nervous about that? 
It's just so, it's so good to have to wrestle, you know, with passages like that. And he says, so because of that, the world, he says, was not worthy of these people. It didn't always treat them well, and yet they ran their race all the way to the end. And so here's what he tells us to do in light of what they did. He says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us. So he's saying, listen, if you're going to run all the way with Jesus, if you're going to run your race all the way to the end, the first thing you're going to have to do is you're going to have to run light. You're going to run light. I mean, runners get this, right? Any of you that are runners in the room, you know, we want the lightest sneakers. We want the lightest clothing. Runners know they need to run light. And you need to run light casting off two things. Number one, it says, first of all, anything that would hinder your ability to run the race. I want you to notice he's not talking about something that's bad or evil or even wrong. It doesn't necessarily have to be wrong. It's just that you're, it's hindering you. It's keeping you from being all in on, in running the race that Jesus is calling you to run. So he says, just throw that off, whatever it is. If it hinders you, get rid of it. That's one thing. But then he goes on to say, and the sin that so easily entangles or ensnares. And so the imagery we're meant to get here is getting all tangled up in twine or rope and stumbling and falling. He's saying, look, if you're caught up in a sin, like it, will, it can keep you from running the race that Jesus is calling you to run. And it's so important that we know that. Uh, So let me just ask you a question. What is it in your life that's hindering you, keeping you, it's not necessarily wrong or bad, but it's keeping you from being all in on the race Jesus is calling you to run? And then I have a second question. What is the sin in your life in which you get most easily tangled? And, And are you willing to love Jesus more than you love that sin. So he says, hey, after you've run light, after you've cast off anything that would hinder it, after you've uh, you know, set aside the sin that would so easily entangled, he would say, not only do you have to run light, but you have to run long. You have to run long. You have to stay the course because he says, let us run with what? Perseverance. In other words, not quitting. Don't quit. Don't stop. Run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. He's saying, look, you have to stay the course. Don't stop. Don't quit. Don't allow yourself to get distracted from the race that God has marked out for you. Uh, and, And there's something else here. He says that God marks out our race for us. This is so important because everybody's race is going to look a little bit different, right? Everybody's race gets marked out a little bit differently because we're so different and we have different circumstances. And so the worst thing that you could do would be to gaze to your right or to your left and see what kind of race all of the other runners are running, Right? That's, I mean, that, we all know that's a recipe for disaster. That's a recipe for stumbling. That's a recipe for falling. 
So we don't want to do that. And then I think there's something else in view too. This reminds us, I think, that every generation has a unique race, a race that's going to look a little different than the race that the generation that preceded it had to run. Uh, you know, so every, everybody's race is going to look a little bit uh, different. So he says, look, you got to run light, you got to run long, and then this is the most important. He says, you got to run looking, looking. So here's what he says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. And I think this gets us to the heart of the problem because many of us, if we're honest, our eyes are fixed on all of the wrong things. Our eyes are not fixed on Jesus. Our eyes are fixed on safety or security or in who in the heck can we blame for what's going on in our culture and our nation. Some of you, your eyes are fixed on your resources, your bank accounts, or your problems. And as long as your eyes are fixed on those things, you will not run with endurance the race that God has marked out for you. you will, we will hide and we will cower and we will fret. And that's all that we will do. We will forfeit being a light, a witness, and a tool in God's hands. So let me ask you, what are your eyes fixed on? What are you relying on? Are your eyes fixed on safety and security and wealth and all the stuff that our culture tells us to fix our eyes on? He would say to you, the author of Hebrews would say to you this morning, Christian, you will never fulfill your destiny until you fix your eyes back on Jesus. Don't allow yourself to put your eyes anywhere else other than on Him. It is only when Jesus becomes our daily point of reference. It is only when we are acknowledging every single day that Jesus is good and that He is God Almighty, that He is in control. It is only then that we will fully live out our destiny and that we will run the race well that God has given us to run. He says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, and this is so great, the author and the perfecter or the pioneer of our faith. In other words, he's the one who kicked this whole thing off by fearlessly facing a cross. In fact, here's how he describes this, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Now, this is so important. I mean, how could Jesus possibly find joy in a cross? Somehow he did. And I think there's a clue. We're told that, that for one thing, right, um, that uh, he knew that it was the, by the cross that he would take his seat at the right hand of God the Father. So the author tells us a little later that he has now sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus knew that by his submission, surrender, suffering, and obedience, that he would be given a seat of power and control. So he found joy in that. But I believe there's something else that Jesus found his joy in on the cross. It was you. It was me. We were his joy. 
He was taking joy in rescuing you and doing something for you and for me that we could have never done for ourselves. We were his joy. And you are his joy today. So we're told for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross and he endured the cross despising or scorning its shame. Now listen, the problem with the crucifixion wasn't just the pain and the suffering. Another main problem of the crucifixion was the shame. The shame of that. See, Jesus as a little boy probably smelled a crucifixion before he saw one. Jesus as a child growing up in Judea had heard the wails and the moans and the cries of pains. He understood the terror associated with crucifixion, but I'll tell you what else he understood. He also understood the shame. He'd seen what happened when a man or a woman was crucified. He'd seen grown men and women lose all sense of dignity. He'd watched people beg and plead to die. He had seen their nakedness and their shame on display for everyone else. He had seen personally what happens to a body after it had hung on that cross day after day after day after day. And he smelled that too. See, the problem of the crucifixion wasn't just the pain and the suffering. It was also the shame. And we're told that Jesus endured that shame, scorned, took on that shame for you and for me. And then he continues, he scorned that shame, and now he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now let me ask you a question. When do you sit down? Normally, we sit down when we finish something. So the fact that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the throne of God, this is the seat of power. This is the seat of control. It's been given to Jesus. So what I'm telling you is that Jesus sits on a throne as a king, and he is completely sovereign, and he is completely in control. And it doesn't matter who the president is. It doesn't matter what party is in office at the time, right? And then, one of the, the second mo- other than fix your eyes on Jesus, this is the second most important phrase in all of this teaching. He says, why? Why is it so important for men and women to fix their eyes on Jesus? So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Because people drop out when they grow weary and lose heart. People do stupid things when they grow weary and lose heart. People do desperate things when they grow weary and they lose heart. So he's saying, listen, I want you to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus so you don't quit. So you won't give up, back down, shut up, or retreat when things get difficult or hard, when the world isn't always kind to you. The question is, are we up for that? And, you know, or are we just going to settle for a culture of complaint and blame? Now, here's what I want to do. I want to talk to two groups of you this morning. First group I want to talk to 
And listen, I'm just going to be honest. I'm not going to pull any punches here, okay? Um, But don't worry. I'll spread it around. There's enough for everybody, each of us. Uh, So first, I want to talk to people who are 48 years old and up. Why 48? I don't know. It just came to me. That's what we're going to go with. So you don't have to raise your hand, but if you're 48 years old or older, look up here at me. Many of you have grown weary and you've lost heart. And the reason is because you have fixed your eyes on a political system. You have fixed your eyes on a political leader. You have fixed your eyes on the good old days. You fixed your eyes on the economy. And because of that, you're weary and bitter and you need to knock it off. And I'll tell you why. You want to know why? Because you're scaring the children. You are. Now keep looking up here. The generation that's coming along after us or behind us are going to take their cue from us. And here's the cue that we're passing down. Oh my goodness, if we don't get the right person elected in office, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. If we don't get this economy fixed, it's the end of the world. Hey, if we don't have religion, religious freedom or values like my mama or my grandmama had, it's the end of the world. Oh my goodness, if we don't get the right laws passed, if we don't have the right policies, it's all going to come unraveled. It's all going to come unglued. Now listen, government matters. Policies matter. Uh, but... The confidence that God keeps his promises and that Jesus sits on the throne and that he is sovereign and in control, that's what matters. Uh, In other words, look, all of those things matter, but neither of those matter as much as men and women who understand this word, and it's the word faith. Faith. When he says to fix our eyes on Jesus, that's what he's talking about. And when I say faith, here's what I mean by that. The confidence that God keeps his promises and that nothing can thwart the plans of God because he and he alone sits on the throne. So what good does it do you or me to fix our eyes on anything other than Jesus? So all you people over 48, knock it off. You need to model for the next generation that God is in control, that God can be trusted, and that as they fix their eyes on Jesus, they will will meet His joy because when you fix your eyes on Jesus, what you see is that His eyes are fixed on you. Okay. So if you're 48 and older, you can breathe in. I'm done um, with you. So now I want to talk to, um, and, by, and by the way, one more thing. I mean, I'm not saying, look, by all means, get involved in the political system. Get it, be involved in your culture. Get involved in your society. But don't fix your eyes there. The result of that, he's told us clearly, the result of that is you will grow weary and you will lose heart. But isn't it good news that there's an alternative 
You know, I think Christians should be the most optimistic, joy-filled people in the entire world because we have a Savior that sits on a throne and whose eyes are fixed on us and He is utterly good and utterly kind. And so, you know, for those of us who've kind of temporarily lost our minds and grown weary, listen, cut it out. Fix your eyes back on your Savior because that's where you're going to find your joy again. Okay, so now uh, if you're here this morning and you're under 48, but especially if you're in your teens and 20s and 30s, look up here. Do not grow weary and lose heart. Don't do it. Don't fix your eyes on social media. Don't fix your eyes on what everyone else is doing. Don't allow a fear of missing out to keep you from missing out on Jesus. Don't fix your eyes on the media or technology. Don't fix your eyes on Washington, D.C. And definitely don't fix your eyes on my generation because we're not being a very good example to you. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. That's where you will find your joy. And I want you you to remember that the people who uh, live by faith in Hebrews chapter 11, uh, they, they live by faith in a world that was not always kind to them in the same way that you and I live in a world that's not always kind to us either. But his eyes are still fixed on me and on you. And those people ran with Jesus all the way to the end, and so should you, and so should I. Rain, come rain, snow, or sun, no matter what comes down the pike, we have to finish our race. And then he goes on and he says this, kind of just another little jab he says in your struggle against sin you've not resisted to the point of shedding your blood he's like really not one single one of you has shed a drop of blood over jesus and yet jesus spilled his blood for every single one of you so what are you worried about what are you afraid of Why are you so overwhelmed? You know, he would just say, look, come on, step up and step in because you've been invited to follow a promise-keeping, blood-shedding God. And I want you to know there were a whole host of people before you who followed God even before He had kept His promise. You're on the other side, so you have every reason in the world to be fearless, to be optimistic, to be encouraged. You have every reason in the world to be confident. You have every reason in the world to be generous because you have a God who's been generous with you. And you have every reason in the world to live your life in such a way that the people who do not consider Jesus consider Jesus because they're in awe of the life that you and I live. Imagine, just think about this. Imagine a generation of Christians. Imagine if it was us 
are generations right here in this room where one day somebody would be able to say the world was not worthy of those people. The world wasn't even worthy of them. They had so much faith and trust in God in the middle of difficulty that they were just unshakable. I mean, you couldn't rattle these people because of their confidence in their risen Savior. And listen, it doesn't matter who the president is. It doesn't matter what happens in an election cycle. It doesn't matter if we're ever able to capture the good old days. It does not matter what happens in the economy, ultimately. It just doesn't. Now listen, all those things are important. They are. But we have an opportunity to run the race set before us, and if we fix our eyes on those things... We'll just become bitter, cynical, resentful old men and women. And I don't know anybody in the room that wants to become those things. See, Jesus not only supplies us with our daily joy, He, he, res- he doesn't just rescue us from our sin. He rescues us from ourselves. Our own sense of cynicism and bitterness and just, you know, all the stuff life just seems to kind of pull out of you, you know? He rescues us from all of that. I want you to imagine if there was a generation of Christians where when people looked at those Christians, they thought, those people are the most fantastic, honest, hardworking, fearless, confident, joy-filled people I've ever met. I am so glad that Christians are here. I am so glad my daughter is dating a Christian. I am so glad Christians are raising my grandkids. I'm so glad Christians moved in next to us. I am so happy when I found out that my boss is a Christian. I was so happy and ecstatic to find out that the three people I hired last week are all followers of Jesus. I'm so glad that Christians are here. I don't believe everything they believe. I don't get everything they do on the weekend, but, but I, I'm attracted to who they are. I'm attracted to how they treat and love one another. Friends, listen, we don't have to imagine that anymore. We, you and I, we can be that generation of people. It is within our grasp and it is meant to happen. It is the race that has been marked out for you and for me, for us. And we must run it. We must. So in 1519, there was a Spanish conquistador by the name of Hernan Cortez who landed in Mexico to begin, depending on the version that you read, either his conquest of the Aztec Empire or his evangelism of the Aztec Empire. And when he arrived, he had 11 ships, he had 508 soldiers, he had about 100 sailors, and most importantly, he had 16 horses. Now remember, they had sailed all the way from Spain to the coast of uh, Mexico, the Baja Peninsula. So once they'd unloaded all of their supplies, Cortez did something that absolutely shocked everybody in his party. Do you know what he did? He ordered all of the ships to be burned in the harbor. And the words that he's rumored to have spoken in Spanish 
I'll say them in English, as all of his crew members were watching all of their, their only means of transportation home go up in flames, he said this, these words, no reserve, no regrets, no retreat. No reserve, no regrets, no retreat. See, he wanted his men to realize, right, that it was moved forward because they, they couldn't go back anymore. Failure was no longer an option, and winning this quest just became that much more important, right? So how do we do this? Listen, so let's stick with the uh, marathon imagery for just a minute. Do you think for a moment that anyone can get up out of bed in the morning and say, you know what, I think I can run a marathon if I just try really, really hard. Now, they haven't trained, but they think they can run a marathon by trying. Anybody here think they're going to make it? Yeah, no, we all know better than that, right? Well, there's a version of Christianity that looks exactly the same way. There's, so in other words, let me tell you what this version looks like. And the reason I can tell you this is because some of us are living it. And it's a version of Christianity that looks like this. So let's say I, I get up and I speak and I give a talk on, let's say, anger. And you go, oh, yeah, I totally agree with Pastor. Man, my anger just gets the best of me. I'm just going to try harder to be less angry. I'm just going to try real hard. Well, you know, you, you drive out of the parking lot. There's, you know, your dogs left liquids and solids on the carpet. You know, the kids are running around. And like an hour and a half later, you break your promise to God and you get angry and you go off. You kick the dog. You yell at the kids. And then what do you do in this version of Christianity? You go, oh, man, this Christian thing is just not working out for me. I mean, no matter how hard I try, I can't do it. Listen to me. The Christian life is not a matter of trying, but training. If you're going to run the race all the way through, you train for that. Look, here's what the, this verse says. It's 1 Timothy 4, uh, verses 7 through 9. Uh, kind of, you can look at it with me. It says, Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. So here's what this looks like in real life. Here's what it looks like in real life to train, to train. You train by engaging in the spiritual disciplines. You go, well, what are those? Well, you're not even aware of it, but you've been training this morning because you gathered, and if your mind was really engaged in what you were singing and you were worshiping and your mind and heart were in alignment, you were training because worship trains us to appreciate and love God even if everything in our life isn't working the way that we want it to. We train by being in God's Word, by allowing the Word of God to inform our hearts and our minds. We train when we serve someone else. 
And here's how that works. Because when I serve somebody else, I start to remember again. I come back to my senses and I remember, oh wait, the world doesn't revolve around me. Like it's not only about me. And there are people that uh, are, are, are worse off than me that need help. And then God shares his joy with you in that moment. You train through a vital prayer life. You train through surrender to God. You train when you say no to sin or to temptation. You train, um, i trying to think of other training. Oh, you train when you suffer and you respond well to that. All of this involves training. And so let's relate this back to, to the anger thing. You will never overcome your anger problem by trying harder. It's not going to work. But you will overcome your anger problem by training harder. By pressing into Jesus, by fixing your eyes on Him every single day and engaging in the disciplines that grow your heart and mind and soul. And so for the man or woman who's, who's in God's Word regularly and has a vital prayer life and a life of service and surrender and a, a person who's not getting entangled in sin as they're running the race, one day you will just wake up and you will realize after all of that training that you're just less angry. That God's been chipping away and chipping away and chipping away at that and you didn't even realize it but you just wake up one day and you just feel different and you feel more in control because God gave you the ability to overcome the anger problem that you could have never overcome on your own as you trained with Him. As you ran looking to Him, not distracted by anything else. So let me just ask you, what kind of person do you want to be this morning? Do you want to be a person that's optimistic and filled with joy because you serve a risen Savior whose gaze is fixed on you? Or do you just want to be that person that dies a bitter, angry, resentful old man or woman because you got all caught up in, you know, in the world and it just extracted all that right out of you? We want to be the generation of which this world wasn't worthy and there was a generation once that that could be said and so i know it can be said again let's make it us let me pray that for us i'm going to invite our team to come up and we're just going to respond in worship but as they're coming up i want to pray that for you and i want to pray it for me let's do that together heavenly father god we just confess to you that as we've run uh, we've gotten distracted. We've gotten entangled. We haven't always fixed our eyes on you. And so we're going we're gonna to do that. We're going to look to you. We're going to quit looking uh, to a political system. We're going to quit looking to uh, political leaders. Sure, God, we know those are important things. And you would tell us to be involved in those things, God. But you would tell us never to fix our eyes there. And so, God, help us to better fix our eyes on you. Help us to abide, Lord Jesus, in you every single day. That's the cure for our anger problem, is uh, hanging out with you. Because uh, your wrath, uh, you know, God's wrath 
you put that off for us and you're no, you're no longer angry because of what you did on a cross. And so you're fully equipped to help us with our anger problem. Uh, or God, whatever it is that we carry that is toxic or unhealthy, God, help us run our race with eyes fixed on you. Help us to be that generation that it could be said the world was not worthy of them. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.